Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and once again turn to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. We're going to go back over a few verses that we've covered already over the past couple of months in this series from Genesis on what it means to be human. Uh, we're going to come back over Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and over Genesis 3, verse 19. Uh, back in the early 90s, a surgeon and a professor of medicine at Yale named Sherwin Newland, against all odds, won a National Book Award for a nonfiction book called How We Die. Book is like a guidebook for the most common causes of death at the time that he was writing, causes that are pretty well map onto the most common causes of death now. He had chapters on problems like heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's. And he, he used each chapter to describe the, the unique path to death that follows along with the decline and then the treatment and ultimately the death of patients who suffer from those diseases. At one level, the book is like a celebration of, of how far things have come in the past hundred years. Uh, due to the hard work of, uh, of, of medical professionals, the creative brilliance of medical researchers, people like many of you out there. Good job, guys. I mean, we've come a long way from 100 years ago. Uh, there's no chapter in Newland's book on tuberculosis. No chapter in his book on dysentery or scarlet fever. No chapter in that book on measles or several of the other top 10 killers from a century ago. But at another level... The book is, is Newland's challenge and warning to fellow physicians and to the rest of us. One thing that he says as he unfolds his book and his, the story of how he came to write it is that way back when he was trained as a physician, he realizes now he was trained to think of himself as a kind of biomedical problem solver. He was trained to think about every disease as a kind of riddle to be solved. He was trained, in other words, as if the causes of death are the thing. And therefore, every, to see every death as a kind of failure. What he had to learn, the story he tells in this book, what he wants his readers to learn by reading the book is that even though we can fight disease, there is no fighting death. And at best, Medicine, even at its great advanced state that we enjoy today, is like a game of whack-a-mole. You guys know that game at Chuck E. Cheese? You know, the, the mole pops up and you whack it with the padded hammer, and then another one pops up and you whack that one with the padded hammer, and then two pop up at the same time, and you're whacking them. Hey, that's what medicine is like. You know, back then it was tuberculosis. They whacked it down. Thank God that they did. But now, you know, I, I saw a stat the other day that 40% that of us will have can cancer at some point during our lives. It's not because cancer is a worse disease than it ever was. It's that we're not dying of tuberculosis anymore. So now we live longer and have a better chance of getting cancer. I'm praying that the Lord will, will lead medical researchers to a cure for cancer. That's a great thing for us all to pray for as Christians. What a good gift that would be to our world. But you know what will happen if we whack cancer down? I don't have the official scientific names, but some other cause of death is going to pop right back up. We'll start dying of something else because, because the underlying problem is not whatever disease that finally gets us. The underlying problem is that we die 
because we're human. Not because we got cancer. Not because we developed heart disease. Not because we were in the wrong place at the wrong time on the wrong section of Interstate 40. We die because we're human. And in a series like this one, on what it means to be human, we haven't painted a full picture until we stare with some honesty and look with some clarity at the fact that being human is being mortal. And that's what we're going to do today. Today we're going we're to consider four things we need to know about death if we want to know what it means to be human. And we're going to draw them out of what we've already covered in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word. If you found that, I hope you have. I'm going to read over a couple of verses that we've covered before that we're going to pass back over today. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And then I'll jump to chapter 3, verse 19. Friends, this is the word of the Lord to us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. To understand what it means to be human, friends, we got to understand at least four things about death. Here's number one. Death is certain. Death is certain. In Genesis 2, Adam was warned about what would happen if he chose to disobey God's words. He would lose the life that God had given him in the first place. You will surely die, God warned him. That was the promise that became the first target of the serpent when he came to tempt Eve to disobey God's words in the garden. He said to Eve, you will surely not die. And at the end of God's speech here about the consequences of sin, the promise he gave as a warning in chapter 2 is affirmed all over again. Adam, you are dust, and to dust you will return. And then as if there was an open question about whether God's words or the serpent's words would carry the day, Genesis chapter 5 gives us one of the most unique and unusual genealogies in all of the Bible. Turn over just a couple more pages and let me show you what I'm talking about. This is the first genealogy in the Bible. You know, a genealogy is a list of who fathered who, fathered who, fathered who, fathered who, and so on. But this one's unique. It's like this one was written in case you weren't sure whether the word of the serpent or the word of the Lord would carry the day. The Lord had said, you'll surely die. The serpent had said, you'll not surely die. So which is it? Chapter 5, verse 3. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Jump to verse 8. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Next up is Enosh, verse 11. And he died, verse 14. And he died, verse 17. And he died, verse 20. And he died. Most genealogies show where folks came from. They trace the lineage back to a common source. This one is told to show us where we're going. Genesis teaches us that death is certain, as certain as the word of the Lord who set it as a punishment for sin. To know what it means to be human, you need to know that no one gets out of life alive. You won't be the exception. There's a little splash of cold water for you on this morning. You and me and all of us, we're all going to die. Now, I know that may sound so obvious that it's not worth talking about as one of four points in a sermon. I don't actually know anybody who would say that they weren't going to die. But, but for many of us, that's a belief that doesn't have to have much effect on our lives for most of our lives. There are exceptions to this, of course. I know many of you are actually sitting out there even now grieving death of someone that, that you love who, who's on your mind even now. But thanks to modern medicine, the average person now lives twice as long as the average person 100 years ago. And, and now, because of the way we tend to treat our diseases and handle end-of-life care, most people living in America will die not in their own homes where they live their lives, but in medical facilities where they get care all the way to the end. And that means, friends, those facts work together. The longer lives that we live, the places that we tend to die now, those work together To make it such that, especially if you're on the younger side of an average lifespan, death can seem like something that's just, that's remote, that's unreal and even impersonal. It it can seem like something that just happens to other people, people who are a lot older than you are, or people who get a rare disease you have almost no chance of getting, or people who happen to live in a war, war zone, a world away. Death can start to feel remote, abstract in a way that just would not have been possible 100 years ago, even right here in our own area in Middle Tennessee. For example, our family spent some time over spring break uh, in state parks uh, nearby within relatively close driving distance, and one of the ones we made a stop in was Alvin York State Park. Anybody been to that one? Alvin York State Park? Not many of you. Sam has been there, but not many of you guys have been there. I highly recommend it. It's pretty small, uh, but it is, it's worth the drive up into the middle of nowhere right near the border with Kentucky. This is the, the homestead of one of the most famous Tennesseans of all time. I mean, Alvin York, the sergeant, the war hero from World War I who almost single-handedly captured like 100 German soldiers or something like that and delivered them back safely to his lines. Anyways... We got to see the store that he ran for most of his life and the farmhouse that was given to him by the grateful citizens of Tennessee on his return from Europe. We got to climb around in the replica World War I trenches. We got to walk 
through the fields that he farmed to feed his family. And because my family is stuck with yours truly for a husband and a father, we made the walk through those fields and then through the woods along the Wolf River to the pedestrian bridge that took us up to the small country road that ran to the little church where Alvin York was converted and to the cemetery next door where Alvin York is buried. That's right. We spent part of our spring break wandering around an old cemetery. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I always notice when touring old cemeteries and something that struck me about this one is how many children are buried. How many death dates, if you really pay attention to the date of death, tend to cluster together because of the way diseases spread back then. How many tend to fall in the same families around the same time? You don't have to look at many stones in a a century-old cemetery to realize just how different a place death held in their lives than it does in ours. And Alvin York was no exception. Just before we we left the cemetery, from his own grave, which was big and ornate and obvious and covered in flags and flowers and stuff, We walked right past and noticed two much smaller graves that didn't really have anything to draw your attention to them. They were two infant children that that Alvin York lost. One barely a year after he got back from Europe and married his wife. And another that was later in their lives. Think about that. When you watch the Gregory Peck, or no, the Gary Cooper movie about Alvin York's life, That movie ends with Alvin York getting off the train, meeting his beloved, going back to find out that he's been bought this amazing farmhouse, fade to black, happily ever after. Alvin York lost two babies. How is the movie not about that? You know, for us in the 21st century, that's stunning. It was just normal life for them. And he went to church from that point forward with an eye shot of where his children lay buried. And everybody else in that church did too. Their families and friends were buried across the street. Every Sunday they went and sat there. Now, guys, I am so thankful to live now and not then. I don't want to go back to that. I'm grateful for the medical care and the nutrition that protect us from so much of what killed our great-great-grandparents. But there's a side effect to all that modern medicine has accomplished. And a side effect, effect to, the, to, to where death shows up now or, or doesn't. Death is as certain now as it ever was. But we can live nodding along when we're told we're going to die. But feeling and behaving as if we're going to live forever. Do you? This will be a good question for you to think about for yourself and to ask of your friends. What difference does the knowledge that death is certain make to your life now? What difference does the knowledge that death is certain make to your life now? The first thing you need to know from Genesis about death, if you want to understand what it means to be human, is that death is certain. The second thing that you need to know about death, if you want to know what it means to be human, is that death is tragic. 
Death is tragic. To be human is to be caught up in a, tr- a great tragedy. Uh, let me illustrate what I mean with a couple of different psalms. Psalm 8, we've talked about it a couple times in this series. One of the most famous psalms about what it means to be human. In it, the, psalm, the psalmist looks up to God and says, What is man that you're mindful of him? What is man? There's the question. Here's Psalm 8's answer. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. What is man? Man is crowned with glory and honor because you decided that would be the case. Humans are amazing. Psalm 144 asks exactly the same question. Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Same setup. Listen to this answer. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So which is it? What does it mean to be human? Crown with glory and honor? Dominion over all creation? Or a breath of air on a cold morning? There, even visible, just for a minute. Gone. The Bible's answer is, yeah. Yes, to both. Glory and misery. All built into you and me. I see two basic ways of facing up to the certainty of death. If you take point number one this morning, you take that medicine, you accept it. Death is certain. I see two basic ways of of facing up to that reality. One way of facing up to that reality, the certainty of death, is to think of death as just one of those things, you know? A natural part of living. Even a kind of push to make peace with it. To kind of shrug your shoulders at it and carry on. Uh, Here and there in the McCullough Family Movie Nights on Friday nights, we have been trying to throw in some classics that our youngest may not have seen yet, even if it's old news for the older brothers. A few weeks ago, we threw in The Lion King. He loved it as much as I did back in the 90s. It's a movie that's standing the test of time for sure. You remember that part right at the beginning where Mufasa explains that death is nothing to worry about because really it's just part of the circle of life? Remember that part? The gazelle eats the grass. The lion eats the gazelle. The lion eventually dies and decomposes, feeding the grass. The grass basically eats the lion so that the gazelle can eat the grass and the lion can eat the gazelle and then the lion can feed the grass again. You get the idea. It's a really common view of death, one where death is just rebranded as life. Not so much to worry about. I don't buy it. I do not believe you can live that way in the world. In fact, I think even Simba knew better. Here's a spoiler alert for you. If you haven't seen The Lion King yet, Mufasa dies. And he dies really early on in the story. Pretty soon after he tells Simba that, the, that death is really a circle of life, He gets thrown off a cliff by his evil brother Scar and trampled by the herd of water buffalo. And you know how Simba reacted when that happened? His heart was broken. He cried tears just like the rest of us at that moment. And do you know why? Because it was really, really, really sad that Mufasa died. We didn't want him to die. He was was awesome. And he was his dad. 
Simba took no comfort from the fact that now the gazelle are going to have another year of grass to enjoy. He lost his father, hard stop, period. And he did the right thing. He cried about it. So that leads to the other way you can respond to the certainty of death. The biblical way, and a way that I believe just makes so much more sense of human experience. If you accept the certainty of death, you could just shrug your shoulders at it, say it's one of those things, circle of life, moving on. Much more realistic way. And the Bible's way of responding to death is to grieve it. It's one thing to know that you can't fight it and win. It's another thing to make friends with it. The Bible teaches that death is not a natural part of life. It's an intervention into life, into this world. And we've seen that even in our text for this morning. Death came first in chapter 2 as a warning in a world that did not know it yet. In a world that was nothing but life and beauty and goodness and full satisfaction, harmony between everything that was. Death came as a prospect in chapter 2, not a baked-in feature of this world that God made. The original intention, the glory and the honor and the purpose God put into us with his image had no place for death. And that's what makes death so awful now. I guess what I'm saying, guys, is that our view of humanity as Christians Our view of humanity is just way, way, way too high to make peace with death. It's precisely because every human life is so precious that every human death is just awful. It even seems like it shouldn't be possible. And in a way, it shouldn't be possible. It wasn't supposed to be possible for lives as precious as ours to end. And the fact that we die The fact that we can't escape this end should grieve us deeply. Unfortunately, at this time and in our place, sometimes grief over death comes with shame. You can feel like if you're honest about how you're doing in the face of death that you're just bringing everybody else down. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to feel that. They all just want to... They all just want to talk about what they're doing with their weekends or how great the weather is. They don't want me talking more about about what I'm afraid of or about how bad I miss. Sometimes you can feel like if you can't get over it, if you can't get over the grief over whoever it is you're missing, there's something wrong with you. And that you'll put a burden on other people that they aren't going to want to carry. Genesis sets that record straight. Now you, now you're the, if you're grieving death, you're the one who sees truth. You're the one who sees it rightly. It's worth grieving. And friends, we want to be a community here where you just don't have to worry about the effect you're going to have on other people if you're honest about how sad you are. We want to, we want to be a community where we're all encouraged to grieve about death because death is worth grieving. Where we, In fact, we grieve together. Even when we're not the one who's personally facing death or who's personally lost someone in our family where we're not the ones who have directly experienced it we want to rejoice but also mourn together so that that grief becomes each and every one of ours sometimes sometimes as christians i think we can carry our own special form of shame about grief that we want to just banish once and for all from our life together as a church what i mean is that that sometimes as christians we can think that because we know we're supposed to hope for heaven It can't be good to weep for now. Uh, We we may not talk about the circle of life 
like Simba did, but, but we do tend to frame our funerals as celebrations of life, don't we? And, and tend sometimes to talk about our loved ones being in a better place. Of course, if our loved ones die in Christ, they are in a better place. And we want to focus on that and not grieve as people who have no hope. But that's not the only thing that's true in this situation. Death is still awful and still worth grieving, even for those who die as Christians. And that's because as Christians, we follow Jesus. We follow his lead in how to respond to everything, including death. And what did Jesus do when he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus? He came up to the tomb of his friend who had just died, a friend that he loved. He saw that his friend was dead and in the ground. He saw the pain that his friends Mary and Martha were having over the fact that they lost their brother. And he knows in just a couple of minutes, he's going to raise this man up from death again. But when he sees it, because he is the true man, the man who saw and did everything that all humans should see and do, when we're working properly, he wept got to him and it should get to us too so I wonder do you know someone who has lost someone recently or do you know someone who's getting closer to the end of their life I want to encourage you if if you've got somebody like that in mind I I want to encourage you even this week to, to check in with them and ask how they're feeling to give them a chance to get past the worry that they might be bringing you down if they go there. To give them a chance to go there because you're asking them to, because you want them to, because you want to go there with them. You know, holiday weekends can often be the most difficult times to be doing without someone that you love. And no doubt many of Many of your friends in this room will be celebrating Easter next Sunday, thinking about who isn't with them to celebrate. What a wonderful week for you to ask someone you suspect will be grieving how they're feeling and show them you're not afraid to mourn with them, that you're not embarrassed or ashamed to go there, that you won't be looking to change the subject as quickly as you can, that you're willing to just sit with them and share it with them because they matter to you and because death really matters. Death is tragic. And you can't understand what it means to be human until you accept that that's true and let it be. But there's more. Death is not just tragic. Death is not just certain. Number three, death is death is humbling. So far, we've been talking about the reality of death and that it's not natural. It's not, it's not part of the goodness of this world, but part of the brokenness of this world. It's not part of how the world was designed originally. But it also wouldn't be quite right to talk about death as, you know, to use the software analogy, as a bug and not a feature. A bug is something no one wanted to be there. It was, it, it, no one meant for it to be there. It's just an accident. It's a glitch in a software program. But, but death actually comes into the world on purpose. The same one who designed this world also designed and deployed death intentionally into his world. Death was given first as a warning by God. Then it was set as a punishment by God. And it was all meant to show 
that we humans are not God. We humans are, are not God. Death entered the world, another way to say it is, death entered the world in response to human pride, to our desire to be God rather than to trust him as God. And death puts us back into our place, as Genesis 3.19 puts it, literally, it puts us back into our place. Out of the ground you were taken for your dust, and to dust you will return. The way I see it, Genesis 3 shows us two ways that death humbles us as a punishment that fits the crime of our sin. Two ways that death humbles us. First, death shows us that we're not actually indispensable. We are not indispensable. Uh, A few weeks back, we talked about the way that, that sin entered the world. We followed the story that's told in Genesis 3 about how, where sin comes from. It unfolds as a story, as a reasoning back and forth process between Eve and the serpent and then inside of Eve, a back and forth with her own self about what to do in response to God's word and in response to the fact that what God had said not to do seemed so good to do. That process started with doubt about whether God's word was really true. And then it moved through doubt about whether God was really good in what he said to them. And then it ended with with Adam and Eve seeing that what God forbid them was too good to do without. We talked about how that, there's so much power in that simple, short description of where sin came from. So much that resonates with our experience, with what's still true and always true when we sin now. Sin is always saying, I want life apart from God. I want life based on what I see as good for me. And by my reading of Genesis 3, the subtext up underneath what that serpent said to Eve, to get Eve to disobey God, the subtext up underneath what that serpent said was, Eve, you will surely not die. You can't. You're too important. You're indispensable. You're the center of the universe. You will not surely die. You're the lead character. How could you be killed off? You see it there? I grew up watching reruns of the Andy Griffith Show. Most of those episodes were, uh, shall we say, very low stakes. Uh, You know, the, 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 the tension that always had to get resolved was something like what to do with the goat that ate the bunch of dynamite so it won't blow up the town. Or how to keep Barney from humiliating himself as the soloist in the community concert over the weekend. But every now and then there was an episode that featured some sort of bank robbery. Or some sort of convicts breaking out and getting onto the loose and stealing a weapon so that they had deadly force in their own hands. And Andy had to go catch them. But I'll be honest, I mean even as a kid you just never worried that something would happen to Andy. You knew that couldn't happen. You knew they couldn't let Andy get killed. The show wouldn't go on without Andy. Who would watch it? And what would you even call it? It's the Andy Griffith Show. I mean, come on. He's not going to die. It's so natural for for us to live as as if our lives, as if really the whole world were just the setting for the Matt McCullough Show. Insert your name here. By nature, by instinct, we put ourselves first. Every time we do that, we're showing that we see ourselves as the lead characters in the story of this world 
a world that features us, that centers on us, that's oriented around us. That's pride. That's what pride is. That's where sin always comes from. And death is designed by God to humble us. We are crowned with glory and honor. That's true. But only because God put us there in his image. And only for as long as God upholds our lives by his power. And the certainty of death shows us, if we have eyes to see it, we are not God. Death humbles us in another way too. And shows us not just that we're not indispensable. It shows us that, this one maybe hurts even more. Nothing we do is indispensable either. Nothing we do is indispensable either. I mean, maybe we can accept that we won't be around here forever, that we're not really at the center of the universe, that the world will just keep going on and on and on without us when we're gone. But, but I think we're all tempted to a kind of fallback hope, if you will, that at least something we do might live on beyond us. At least something we do might be indispensable to the world we leave behind. We want to live on through our work or through our kids or some sort of contribution to society. I don't know, name like half of a street, a cul-de-sac after me or something. But that's an empty hope too. Look back at Genesis 3.19. God brings in the curse of death when he's talking to Adam about his work. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. He's telling him that his work is going to be painful now. It's going to be difficult. It'll be full of thorns and thistles. Basically, whatever you want to do, it's going to be an uphill battle for you. You're only going to eat bread even by the sweat of your face. And you'll work to eat and work to eat, and work to eat, day after day, until you return to the ground you came from, dust to dust. Can you see the meaning behind that poetry? Adam will work, and work, and work, and work, and what will he have to show for it in the end? Where does all that work get him? Literally, right back where he started. It will get him nowhere. What, what an incredible image of futility. Please, please, friends, do not miss this point. I, I fear Steve Jobs, one of my favorite characters from recent American history, I fear he, he did miss this point. Uh, a while back, I saw a quote from Steve Jobs, Apple founder, talking about how freeing it is to accept that you're going to die. Listen to his perspective. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life, Job said. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. There's no reason not to follow your heart. That's using the reality of death to justify basically doing what you want with your life. And you may as well. What do you have to lose? Go for it. Follow your heart. But there's a more realistic and more sobering way to put the same thing Steve Jobs says here. If life really is your own, 
And if life really does end in death, the question is not, what do you have to lose? The real question is, what do you have to gain? From anything you're doing right now, what do you have to gain? When you follow your heart, you're just chasing dust if life is your own. I think Irma Bombeck got it better. She's not as famous as Steve Jobs. It was a huge hit as a comedian back in the 70s and 80s when people still read newspapers. She had this syndicated weekly column called Wit's End, a, a, a humor uh, column in, in, in several newspapers. A couple weeks ago I saw this quote that I thought you guys might enjoy. Irma said, You know, my life is dominated by dirt. At this end of the house, there's dirt. There's dirt in the bathroom, dirt on the plates in the kitchen, dirt in the rug. So I work to get rid of the dirt. And by the time I get to the other end of the house, first end of the house is dirty again. It never ends. And in the end, after all these years of struggling against dirt, struggling against dirt, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. I promise my goal this morning is not to depress you. I, I do actually mean to drive you toward hope. But here's the thing. Unless you're willing to be humbled by death, you will not find hope in the gospel. Unless you're willing to be humbled by death, you cannot be helped by the gospel. Here's what I mean. At the heart of the Christian hope is the promise that God, the same God who made us, the same God we dethrone when we choose to live life on our terms, the same God who sets the record straight through the punishment of death. This God has also offered the way of escape and the way to a new life beyond the grave. This God sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not die but have everlasting life. And that everlasting life is only possible because, because the son of God came to die a death he didn't deserve in the first place, a death we deserved, even though he never did anything wrong. And three days later, this son of God who died our death, not his, he rose again with the promise that he crushed the power of death over anyone who will ever trust in him for life. Friends, none of that makes any sense at all unless you know that you're going to die and you deserve it. Jesus offers you nothing but feel-good sentimentality and an unmeetable moral example to follow unless you know you're going to die and you deserve it. Otherwise, the gospel is just so bizarre or so offensive or so just simply irrelevant to what you really want out of life. And it always will be until you first know that you have nowhere else to turn for a problem you cannot solve that touches every level of your life. Becoming a Christian means saying, life on, my life on my terms, it dies with me. It leads to a pile of dust just slipping through my fingers, and I deserve it. But Jesus offers me his life on his terms, and I'll take his life instead. And if you do, if you take his life in place of yours, well, then you're ready to receive the fourth thing to know about death if you want to understand what it means to be human. The fourth thing to know about death is that death is useful. Death is useful. You heard me. 
Death is useful. I don't mean to roll back what I've already said. Death is still tragic. Death doesn't belong in this world. Death is humbling, and we're right to look ahead to the day when death will be no more. I'm not telling you to make friends with it. But where Genesis gives us the bad news, unfiltered, full bore, the rest of the Bible fills in another shade. Consider Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. So far, so good. You can follow that pretty easily. And the day of death than the day of birth. Wait, wait, what? The day of death better than the day of, of birth? What's better than a birthday? Maybe Christmas? Maybe? But the day of your death, what does that mean? What he means is that we have more to learn from the fact that our lives will end than from the fact that we're alive in the first place. We have more to learn from the fact that our lives will end than from the fact that we're alive in the first place. He continues, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Psalm 90 says basically the same thing. So teach us to number our days, the psalmist prays, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Translation, Help me remember that my life will end so that I'll know how to live in the meantime. That's what the psalmist is praying for. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us death can do for us. Death, in other words, is a useful teacher if we're prepared to learn the lessons. Specifically teaches us two things, and we close with these. Death puts our problems in perspective, and death puts our focus where it belongs. Death puts our problems in perspective and our focus where it belongs. Here's what I mean. Death puts our problems in perspective. Remember, remembering we're going to die protects us from giving an outsized place in our hearts and minds to problems that just can't compare and that wouldn't bother us so badly if we were really thinking straight. I don't know about you, but I get stressed about my work sometimes. All sorts of reasons for that, some more reasonable than others, but a lot of times it's because I want my work to be really good. And I want it to make a difference. And I want it to stand the test of time. I work like the stakes are, are high. I work like I'm indispensable. Or at least like I need my work to be. You ever work like that? You ever feel that way about your work? Here's a pro tip for you. Find a skull of some form and put it on your desk. I, I'm actually not kidding. Above my desk, on my wall, it's just a little practical pro tip. I've got a chalk rubbing made of an old New England tombstone of a skull with wings and an hourglass, a rubbing that was made by a Vanderbilt professor of history who died and left the rubbing to an estate sale where I bought it. It says in Latin on one side, memento mori, remember death, and on the other side, fugit hora, Time flies. And you do you, but I'll tell you what that does for me. That puts Psalm 90 into my every day. Matt, that's where you're going. Stop stressing as if what you're working on or how well you pull it off changes anything about where you're going to end up. Sometimes it works pretty well. Not always, but, but sometimes it does. You might try it. Sometimes I stress about relationships. Do you? You know, sometimes interaction hits me wrong or something done to me. It's tough to let go of or I feel misunderstood. How bothered 
would I be if I knew that, that both me and whoever it is were going to be turning to dust in our graves tomorrow? If I knew we'd both die tomorrow, how bothered would I be? Probably not very bothered. And basically, though, we will be. Fugit hora. Time flies. Death could teach us to be far more difficult to offend and a whole lot easier to please if we would learn the lesson. Sometimes I get stressed about the future. Do you? Will I reach my goals? Will I keep my health? I think stress about the future is always a sign that I've put some hope in something that's vulnerable, something I've leaned my weight on, something that wobbles. I've put my hope in who I'll be or what I'll do or what I'll get tomorrow. And death teaches me, no, 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 no. Tomorrow is not when you get what you're hoping for. Tomorrow is when it's all over. My life is like chaff. Death puts my problems in perspective. It could do that for you. It could be a useful teacher. But it's never, ever to stop there. Death is always meant For those of us who are in Christ, who are still called to remember that we're going to die, it's meant to put our focus where it belongs. Not on ourselves, not on anything we might gain or enjoy in this world, but on the one whose love is steadfast. The one who never changes. The one who cannot die. And the one who gives to us his love as the only preservative that can protect our lives and extend them forward to the future. Psalm 90, just after praying for help to number our days so that we can get wisdom Ask for something else. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, the psalmist prays, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The only way to a resilient joy that can stand up to the truth about death is to let death drive you from any other wobbly hopes you might be tempted to lean on in this life and to the only thing that lasts, to the steadfast love of the God whose love gave you your life in the first place. When I accept what it means to be human, that it means I am and will be mortal, it helps me to throw myself onto the love that gave me life in the first place. My hope is in his love and in nothing else. If I'm preserved, it will be not because I'm indispensable. I'm not. It will be not because I deserve it. I I don't. The only preservative strong enough to keep my life is the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Only God's love is more certain than death. And therefore, there is only one comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, let's pray together that the Lord will root us in this confidence that Jesus makes possible. Oh, Father, we want to live and to die in the hope of a steadfast love that never ceases, that wraps us up and protects us even from death itself. We pray that you would give us this hope and that you would strengthen it through the honesty that your word calls us to about death. I pray that we wouldn't dodge the blow this morning, but that we would let it drive us to Jesus and to a deeper gratitude and 
comfort in seeing that he has taken the blow. We pray that we would rest in him and him alone. Amen.